take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, I would remind you this is the Word of God. It will stand forever. But because of this divine author that has written it, the Spirit of God Himself, it was written for you today, as well as all the other saints who've read it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the time of harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, you have already spoken in the reading of your word. Now, would you please speak in its preaching? Give us hearts to hear, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. When was the last time that you were in the dark? You think, well, that's kind of obvious question. I mean, last night, Michael, right? Uh, Well, no, actually, if you actually think about it and actually pause and think about kind of the the nature of your house or the nature of the community that you live in, very rarely ever are we in the dark anymore at all, right? Between all of the little LED, you know, uh, lights that light up on our phones or light up on our computers or light up on our whatever technological devices we have in our house, even our smoke detectors have LEDs to light the room a little bit. It's one of those weird things that you actually don't really think about, but we are never, very rarely ever, in the dark. I mean, we have some sense of darkness, or it's darker than it is normally during the day, but like actually to be in the dark. Some of you know one of my stories that I do love to tell when I have time to tell it from college where a series of perhaps the worst decisions ever made by any human in a row led me to one of the most kind of important and formative experiences in my entire life. Uh, one of my dear friends and I got trapped at the bottom of a cave 100 feet down below the surface of the earth with no knowledge and nobody knowing where we were, no ability to climb out when our flashlights broke. 
And so ended up getting stuck for the space of eh, somewhere between three and four hours, 100 feet below ground, with no opportunity for salvation. Friends, that is a level of darkness that is, it's, it's tangible. You can taste it. You can feel it. We got to the point the darkness got so bad, we were starting to sing hymns because we knew that was it. We had a good run. It was a good 20 years of life, but it was over then. The darkness was going to get us until we remembered we had a camera and the flash would be enough to get us out. That kind of darkness, that, that overwhelming, kind of tangible, oppressive, consuming darkness is really where chapter 8 of Isaiah ends. Didn't spend a whole lot of time on it last week because you have this kind of problem building and building and building and building. Verse 21, they'll pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll speak bad, 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 bad. Verse 22 takes us into that kind of darkness. And they will look on the earth, but behold, behold, think exclamation point, pay attention, ears up, flashing neon light. Behold, distress and darkness, in fact, even beyond that, the gloom of anguish, even beyond that, they will be thrust into thick darkness. The kind of darkness that consumes our minds, the kind of darkness that consumes our hearts, that overwhelms and oppresses and destroys and discourages. It's from that backdrop, that kind of uh, darkness that cannot be gotten out of, that chapter 9 begins. And it's important to remember the darkness that we're talking about here is not physical darkness the way that my terrible, stupid, awful, immature, irresponsible cave story did. What's being talked about here in this type of darkness is darkness of heart and darkness of mind, darkness of spirit, darkness of ignorance, darkness of fear, darkness of terror, the darkness, the weight of trouble. And it's intriguing that as chapter 9 intrudes on this darkness, it begins to explain to us in a way that a passage we've all read probably a hundred times. It's so hard to actually read this out loud so that you don't hear the song in your head every time. But as it intervenes and interjects into the darkness, it begins by explaining to us just a, a, a glimmer of who our God is, what He thinks of His people, how He feels towards His children. Is this the God that hates His people and seeks their destruction? Is this the God who hates His children and seeks to wipe them off the face of the planet? Is this the God who wants to destroy His people and you and me? Who is this God? Well, verse, no, chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. It's a 180-degree turn. It's an absolute U-turn that would have mystified the reader. Remember, they don't have chapters and verses the way that we do. And it goes from 
gloom and distress and darkness, this massive U-turn in verse 1, there will be no gloom. In fact, actually, now the verb tenses get a little confusing because of the nature of prophecy, but the latter part of verse 1 actually begins to showcase the kindness of who this God is. Not only does He love His people, not only does He care for His people, but He cares for His people particularly when they are broken and discouraged and distraught. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These would be the uh, tribes that were the first invaded under the judgment of God. When they had been uh, disobedient to the Lord and had received his judgment, again, it's going to be kind of future-oriented, the timeline gets a bit messy, but when they are invaded and basically wiped off the map, these two would have been two of the ones that were invaded first. These would have been the people who were the first to be conquered, or some of the first to be conquered. These would have been the people who would have been some of the first to bear the shame of being invaded by the enemies of God and being destroyed. These are the people that would have been kind of, first in some sense, the most broken, the most distraught, the most overwhelmed, those that would have been fractured into a million pieces. And it's intriguing that our God showcases how much He loves His children, how much He loves His people, that when He does this kind of interjection of glory and blessing into this message of sin, He doesn't just do it kind of in theory. He doesn't do it in the ether. Instead, He takes His people that are absolutely blown apart into a million pieces, and He takes them and says, look, my blessings are specifically for you. Those that would have been the objects of his discipline now become the objects of his blessing. And friends, there are some of us in the room today that that's really how you felt when you walked in this morning, isn't it? You felt that anguish. You felt that deep darkness. Perhaps you cannot see the way forward in your life. Perhaps you cannot see the way forward in a relationship with your family or a relationship with your boss or a relationship with the own space between your ears. Perhaps the confusion has set in. Perhaps the discouragement has set in. Perhaps the pain of a deteriorating body has just overwhelmed you. For so many of us, walking into the building today, verse 22 would have been our starting point, wouldn't it? Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, the thick darkness. And dear saint, I would say to you, if if that's the condition you find yourself in when you walked in this morning, or perhaps as the worship service has continued... The story doesn't stop in verse 22, it starts in 22, and it migrates into verse 1 of chapter 9 that the Lord loves His people. He never leaves them, He never forsakes them. In fact, He's in the business of blessing them. And I love that you get to see how richly He means this promise. 
the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That nations there is a word that would specifically include Gentiles. It's not referring solely to the Jewish people at this point, but the expansion of the nations. And so you have this kind of throwaway line that we've all heard a million times because we really focus in on the latter parts of this section of the the Bible, but we've heard this part. But it's interesting if you actually pause and think about it for just a minute what God is actually doing. These people, these nations, I mean these tribes that would have been some of the first invaded as a mark of God's discipline are the very locations that Jesus spends his ministry These are the locations that the vast majority of Christ's ministry on earth takes place. These are are the, the tribes, not nations, sorry. These are the tribes where if you wanted to find Jesus when he was ministering on earth, this is the place where you went. Those that would have been known by the shame of being invaded uh, early on, if not first, those that would have been known for the destruction that would have followed, those that would have been, like I said, broken in so many ways interestingly, are the ones that get to experience the very presence of the Messiah that they've been looking forward to. In fact, that promise doesn't stop with his presence there in verse 1, the glorious way of the sea of the Lord providing the Messiah and Galilee to the nations. But then verses 2 and 3 introduce two new ideas two kind of metaphors to help them understand what the love of the Lord is like, what His blessing is like. Verse 2, it's this idea of light being introduced. To be able to go from this profound, thick darkness, the oppressive darkness, the felt darkness, the the all-consuming darkness. Verse 2, those who've walked in that darkness suddenly see not just a light, (laughs) it's not just a a little match, a great light shows up and kind of interjects itself into the situation. Those dwelling in the land of deep darkness on them, suddenly a light has shined, the older versions say. That God steps into time and space, that God intervenes in their story, that God intervenes in their sorrow, in their brokenness, in their sadness, in their gloom, in their depression, in their hurt, in their heartache, and brings light. As I mentioned in the opening introduction, my college experience was beyond grim. It was, like I said, I think probably the largest number of irresponsible decisions made by any human in that brief of a period of time that got me in it. But Sam and I, literally trapped in the bottom of a cave, assumed we were going to die. We had broken out into the hymn sing because we knew that was it, and at that point it was just a matter of time until the dehydration got us, and nobody would find our bodies because why would they? Because nobody knew where we were. Until the Lord provided kind of one of those moments of insight to think that we hadn't really brought anything with us. It was, again, as irresponsible as possible. But he had a camera because he was going to try to take a picture of one of the rock formations. And so while he was trying to reassemble one of the flashlights that had broken, he handed me the camera and get me to take a picture. And again, it's amazing. Our eyes fully dilated. When you take a picture with a flash of a camera, you can see 
And you can see for not just two or three or four or five seconds, your eyes are so dilated that when the light comes into it, you can see that image in your eyes for like two minutes or three minutes. And it was the most amazing thing to go from not being able to see anything but darkness and perceived death to suddenly be able to see Sam, my friend, sitting five feet in front of me, to see the rock ledge that he was sitting on, to see the little bit of water that was running down, to see the wall that came up overhead, and to be able to have it burnt into my retinas for two minutes, to be able to see. And that's with just one flash of a camera. What's being talked about here is the Lord interjecting, not just a camera flash, (laughs) but a great light, a light so great that it, it burns the darkness away. I think this is one of the most intriguing kind of realities for those of us that have walked into some of the dark paths of our lives. Perhaps depression has set in. Perhaps you've been in some very grim places in your brain. And the lie that the devil constantly tells is that you can't get out. Much like the lie we were being told to ourselves from the cave, you can't get out, there's no way out. You'll never make it. You can't get out. The darkness is too great. And it's intriguing how many times I sit down with people in my office and go through counseling and go through talking about their lives and they'll just say, I just overwhelmed that it's just too much. The darkness is too much, Michael, I can't. And I love that that's the exact person that God is talking about. Those who have walked in darkness, those who have the burden of sin, those who have the burden of ignorance of sin, those who have all of the consequences of sin, those that are broken by sin, for those he has come to bring light that we might see again. And interestingly, for his children, that light produces a very clear and very important effect immediately following Just as God's people have this new light kind of opening eyes and opening hearts so that we're able to see who he is and able to see what he has promised, verse 3 immediately explains the consequence of being in the presence of God for his people. Joy. The multiplication of joy. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased the nation. You've increased joy. In fact, your joy, the joy is so rich, the best description is that a farmer on harvest day where they've gathered in all the crop and they are rolling in money. This is uh, the biblical version of the Scrooge McDuck, right? We're jumping into the uh, gigantic pool of gold coins and swimming around in there and you know bathing in gold or whatever else. The joy of blessing that's just been overwhelmingly poured out upon the people of God. And it's intriguing that as we think about this, for so many of us, it's, we go to this and go, well, I, you know, I already feel so much of that. Like, how is this even prophecy? It's really, in so many ways, it's a description of what I'm living now. That's what some of us feel. But others in the room, it's like these promises are so far off. They're going, well, I can't wait until the second coming or I can't wait until the resurrection. I can't sometimes even wait until I die because promises like this are so far off. The darkness is so overwhelming. How can there be any joy? How can there be any happiness? How can we have both of these at the same time? 
And I love what you have working really in this prophecy. In reform circles, it's often phrased the already not yet problem. That when the Lord makes prophecy in most cases, not all, but in most cases, there is an element in which they are already fulfilled in Christ, but not yet fully so. And it's interesting because you get to see in the rest of these verses three specific ways that these are already fulfilled, but not yet consummated. How the light that God gives and the joy that God gives is already here, but not yet full. But not yet full. Let's look at these three things. Uh, They helpfully do it in the ESV. That's the way the Hebrew is. Verses four, five, and six all start with four to cue your eyes and to catch that this is what's taking place. It's a good grammatical kind of thing to help us read carefully with our ears as well as with our eyes. Light and joy. What is God using to bring light and joy? Verse four, he's bringing liberation. How does the Lord bring light to his people? How does the Lord bring joy to his people? Verse four, he liberates them. He brings freedom, freedom from slavery, freedom from enemies, freedom from destruction. He brings liberty. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So very clear reference. Just like when the Midianites were defeated, that's what the Lord is doing to all of our enemies. And we're like, yeah, all right, day the Midianites were defeated. And all of you act like you remember what that is because you have no idea because we don't remember our Bibles that clearly and we have to look it up and that's okay, it's fine. Judges six through eight. This is Gideon. Actually, the most famous part of Gideon's story, really, where he brings the gigantic army and the Lord's like, nah, you have too many guys. Let everybody that's afraid leave. So like 90% of the army's like, I'm out, I'm afraid, I'm gone. And then he sends them to the brook again so that they would drink and then takes the smaller of the two numbers. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. Uh, It was just an arbitrary mechanism to define the number as the smallest number possible so that Gideon and his army of 300 go against the Midianites which many of you probably don't remember how big the Midianite army was at this point. Do you remember? 120,000. You're taking 300 dudes against an army of 120,000. It's listed in the next chapter, chapter eight, that get killed all in total because the Lord will do it. And interestingly, what verse four here is talking about is, look, the Lord's victory is so great. The Lord's victory is so profound. The best description is when these 300 bozos that can't really do anything go up against an army uh, twice the size of Fort Mill and win mysteriously and miraculously because God has done it. And there is this kind of not yet aspect to this that we look forward to that we're going, yes, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the day where all of God's enemies are defeated and all of mine as well. I can't wait for the day where sin is defeated and I don't have to worry about temptation anymore. I can't wait for the day where uh, those that persecute the church are defeated and we don't have to pray for the persecuted church. We don't have to pray for the martyrs. I can't wait for the day where those who commit injustice 
are no longer with us. I can't wait for the day where those blasphemers are no longer with us, where we don't have to fight against those things. I can't wait for the day where all of the enemies of God are destroyed. That day's not here yet, is it? Well, actually, it's not here in fullness, but boy, it is here in part, isn't it? It is here in part. It's already here. In fact, actually, this idea of the freedom from oppression is 100% already being fulfilled in a small fashion in the people of God. I mean, you think about it. Victory over temptation. Has some of us had victory over temptation this week? Okay, not every temptation. I mean, to be fair, not every one of them. But we had victory over some, didn't we? (laughs) And that's more than I could say about myself before I was a Christian. Same thing for you. Before you were a Christian, did you ever have victory over temptation? Not once. But yet the Spirit of God has done something in you. The Lord Jesus has transformed you, and already there's a liberty that's shown up. How many of you have been able to, at least in some fashion, live with courage and bravery with a person defined by the the love of Christ this week? Again, maybe not all the time. Maybe it was in just kind of brief glimmers of hope, but where you didn't have every single moment defined by the insecurity of will people love me or will I be good enough? but instead freedom from that bondage, freedom from that slavery. Maybe even just a little bit this week, being able to read your Bible and to know that you were freed from the lies of the devil, freed from the untruth and the the deception of the world around us. Already experiencing liberty. For those of you that were able to attend Linda's funeral just recently, That was a big point in the sermon, wasn't it? That already we watched a woman live victoriously, even building to the point, 1 Corinthians 15, that the last enemy to be defeated was death. She was victorious in life. We watched that, didn't we? She's victorious in death. We know that now. And we look forward to her being victorious in the resurrection. This victory doesn't have to wait. It's already here. Now, the reality is, is there's kind of two applications on this that we have to deal with. Some of us get discouraged so easily, and we feel like there's no hope, and we feel like there's no progress, and we feel like we haven't changed, and we feel like every day today is just like the day before and the day before, and there's just no nothing kind of moving anywhere. And if you are in that category, dear friend, you need to spend some energy thinking about how God is already victorious in your life. Celebrate any and every victory of the Holy Spirit in your life. Celebrate any and every victory over temptation. Fight the discouragement of the devil because he is already victorious in you. Others, perhaps the application is instead focus on the not yet. That this life is good, God blesses, but we're not yet done. It's not yet over, it's not yet finished. Our time here is not yet at an end. 
And as a result, that victory will not yet be full. There will be sorrow. There will be sadness. There will be difficulty. And don't be discouraged. Already not yet, we have verse 4, this liberty of God freeing His people. How do we have light? How do we have joy? He liberates His people. But not just freeing us to something or nothing, freeing us and then kind of letting us go. Verse 5 is the application of that freedom. He frees us to a purpose. He frees us to peace. For peace, in peace, to act out peace. Verse 5, that's what takes place here. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood, all, all of the markers of combat are packaged up and thrown away. Now this is, if, if you're really, honestly, if you're in the middle of combat, this is a terrible strategic decision. This is the kind of thing that gets a general fired, isn't it? Hey, let's take all of our gear that we use to fight with and let's just pitch it. Um, sir, we're still fighting. Battle's still waging. We still need our stuff. Like, can I not throw my boots away until we're done? I'd like to wear them at least. I don't want my toes to stepped on. No, actually what's being taken place here kind of worked out in, in verse five is the Lord saying, look, the, the victory is so his and is already so comprehensively won that the consequence is peace both now and not yet. That in fact, we get to kind of lay down the tools of war and take up different tools instead. I love this. We get to see this kind of at the end. It's one of those great portraits at the end in Revelation, right? We get to see, it's one of my favorites there at the end of the book of Revelation where uh, you're at the wedding feast of the Lamb and the, the doors open and you have this description of Jesus coming in the back, right? It's you know, slightly different than our weddings. Our weddings, the bride comes in the back and the groom is up front. In Revelation, it's the bride that's up front uh, and it's the groom as the doors open and the groom comes in and he's got his sword and his name written on his thigh and he's powerful and he's the word of God and he's victorious. And we always stop reading there because there's a rest of that chapter, isn't there, where there's two feasts that take place simultaneously. Jesus comes in and he's united with his church and they have the wedding feast of the lamb inside and outside the birds feast on the bodies of his enemies. And he's destroyed them. He's absolutely conquered them. He has obliterated them. It's the weird kind of two parts of the feast. His people feast with him and his enemies are destroyed we know this is in some sense that kind of not yet element of the church that he is, there is going to be peace that will be fully and perfectly accomplished. This is the hope of the martyrs. This is the hope of the persecuted church. But again, the not yet part, that's it, but the already is real as well. And I love this part because what's happened is we've changed our tools, haven't we? In the time in which this was written, what were the tools of war that they used? Swords and spears and shields and things like that. Because of these great changes, these great realities, the, the kind of altering of the nature of really what the church even is at some point, what are the tools that we use now? Do we take up sword and spear? 
Do we go to our next door neighbor and say, you need to believe in Jesus or I'm going to run you through? Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that at all. What, what do we do instead? We love and evangelize and suffer and serve. It's a totally kind of transformative way to think about the consequences of our victory. Our liberation in verse 3 has been so comprehensive that already in verse 4, we have become such people of peace that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our ministry is now a ministry of reconciliation. And the way we reconcile each other is not at the point of a spear or at the point of a knife. It's not at the threat of death. It's through love and service and truth and evangelism, repentance and hope and joy. What we have in verse 4 is a, a transformation of a people who have been so changed by who God is, they've become a people of peace already, but then not yet full. Verse 5, I'm sorry. So what's happening, these mechanisms for blessing and light, liberation in verse four, peace in verse five, and then our favorite, verse six, the obvious one. The child, the prophesied child shows up and he is the transformational figure in all of human history. This child is the one that changes everything. This child is the one that makes everything different from what it was. We get to see really, again, kind of three things in connection with him. Not my division, just how it providentially works out. First, it identifies kind of this child is born, he's given to us, and and not only is he going to be any child or every child, he's actually going to be the ruler child. He's going to be the king. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to be the king. And what it immediately jumps to then are his royal titles. And these royal titles are given to describe what kind of king he is going to be. Right? You think about when you studied history, Ivan the Terrible gave you a pretty good indication as to what kind of ruler Ivan the Terrible was. Here we have King Jesus. What is he? Wonderful counselor. That term there is a divine term. Already Isaiah is assigning divinity to this king. He's not just going to be a child. He's going to be a divine child. And if that weren't clear in the first term, the second one makes it even clearer. He is the mighty God. He's going to care for his people the way that a father, and not just any father, but an everlasting father would care for his people. And he's going to be such a good king, he will even function as the ruler of peace itself. He will accomplish the victory. He will. He will be so successful that we'll get to see in verse 7 what the consequences of his rule is, that his government will produce peace and there will be no end to it. Here is the promise that was given to David that there would be a ruler on his throne forever now fulfilled in Christ, that he will rule and reign forever. And he'll rule and reign with justice He'll rule and reign with righteousness. He'll rule and reign as a perfect king. And again, this scheme is so very helpful as we think about the not yet and the already. Is this fully happening yet? 
Well, not yet fully. I mean, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We know he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He hasn't returned with all of his angels. He hasn't returned and raised the dead. We haven't met him in the clouds and then descended back to earth for judgment day. We haven't, we're not yet there. I think we've probably all kind of noticed that, right? Haven't had judgment day yet. But even now, is he ruling and reigning? Yeah. Is he already king? Yeah. Is he already in charge? Yes. Is he already the wonderful counselor? Yes. Is he already the mighty God? Yes. Is he already functioning in this everlasting father? Yes. Is he already the prince of peace? Yes. Is he already the king over his perfect kingdom? Yes. Which should, in some sense, hopefully, produce some kind of hope, some sense of hope in our lives. I remember reading years ago a book that was back when I was in my youth ministry era as a youth pastor, youth director, reading a book kind of trying to understand teenagers, which is a mystery, I'm sure, even to themselves, but yet faithful sociologists have tried to do this. It was written by a seminary professor who was kind of writing what it meant to be a teenager in the uh, mid-2000s, 2005-ish. And his assessment was intriguing. He said, these teenagers have more tools to connect them to other people than any humans in human history. And though they have more resources to connect them to more people than anyone in human history, they struggle with isolation more than humans, any other humans in human history. And the consequence of it is a profound sense of hopelessness. This is 2005, writing about your, you know, 18-year-olds in 2005, which are now your, what, early young 30s? That's weird to think about. But interestingly, talking about an entire generation that's grown up with all of these technological marvels that could be used to create relationship, and interestingly, the byproduct of it is hopelessness. And now we're watching that really come to roost, aren't we? What, suicide, the largest killer of young men now? in America? Hopelessness, descending upon a nation. Watching people, really, that's what they're beginning to understand that these school shootings are, things like that. They're not actually shootings as much as they're just attempts at suicide for people who want to take people with them. We're watching a nation that's really lost its way, that's being overwhelmed by hopelessness. And I tend to think, I'm like, what, what, a, what a contrast what this world has to offer with an already not yet understanding of this. I mean, what's our world offering at best, right? Being told that probably everything's your fault when it probably is or maybe even isn't, that you have no chance to kind of improve your circumstances, that's at least what we're being told. Being told that the entire world is imploding and falling apart like Chicken Little, being told that everything is just grim. And then to have the cognitive dissonance of all of that, plus the joys of life, plus being told that you're special, when actually knowing that you're not, you're very ordinary, and we're watching an entire nation fall apart. And so much of that, I'm sure, is because it's so preoccupied with self. And in contrast, you have Isaiah, who's actually dealing with something much bigger and much more important. 
how do we fight the darkness? How do we fight the thick darkness, the oppression of all that is evil? And the answer is through God's power and namely through God's work. I I love this entire passage because how much do the people of God do anywhere from verse 1 to verse 7? Did you catch that? They don't, actually. They don't. It's why the last line of these verses is so important. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts will do this. God is in charge of this because it's his kingdom and he will take care of his people. Friends, let me say this maybe even perhaps a touch more pointedly and I will end with this. If you feel the darkness you are not the answer. The promise of Christ is the answer because the Lord himself will do it. May it be that we all together, as we've been doing prayer and fasting, as we have prayer time on Wednesday, as we have worship together Wednesday night, or if you're just in the dark place right now, Go back to these promises and know that God will do it even when you cannot. And you know how we know it? Because Jesus has already said, it's finished. He already did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Oh, Lord, stir up in us obedience and joy and gladness. And forgive us for sin, forgive us for not trusting your promises. For Christ's sake, amen.